Welcome to the Pattern Podcast from KXE in London. As a church, we want to learn ways of being with Jesus, becoming like him and doing the things he did in order to see the city we love transformed. This podcast is a resource to help us explore these spirit-filled patterns of living and start putting them to practice every day. For this episode, Pete James went to speak to Ellie Mumford. Ellie and her husband John were founders of Vineyard UK and continue to be a significant part of this global church planting movement. Ellie has a natural ability to communicate her faith to people who don't know Jesus, which is why we wanted to get her input on the practice of sharing the gospel. So welcome to the Passion Podcast. We're here today with Ellie Mumford, and we're going to be looking at the practice of sharing the gospel, which we're very excited about. Thank you, Ellie, uh, for spending time with us today and and chatting. Uh, Before we get on to that specific practice, though, of sharing the gospel, uh, at the heart of Patton is a conviction uh, that there's an intimate relationship between operating in the power of the Holy Spirit and the everyday practice of spiritual disciplines. So before we get into the practice of sharing the gospel, I wonder if you could just share a little bit about the role of spiritual disciplines in your life and what they have to do with a, a life, a daily life of walking with the Spirit. Well, when I first heard the word uh, disciplines, my heart sank and I thought, oh no, 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 that's a terrible place to begin because my personal disciplines aren't always that impressive. But as I began to think about it, I thought, no, it's just who I am and what I do. I love Jesus with a passion. I want to be in touch with him. I love the work of his Holy Spirit. I'm always crying out for more of it. And in between the high points and the wonderful points and the memorable points, we're trying to create habits of a lifetime. So it's reading the scriptures and beginning to enjoy them more and understanding that actually sometimes Verses can jump out at you and think, my goodness, the Holy Spirit is at work. He's speaking to me here. So I love the scriptures. I love to pray. I'm not very good at it, but I do it. And um, worship. I love worship, and I love worshiping in community. I mean, a Sunday worship is as good as it gets. But then I also love worshiping on my own with my little iPhone and singing where nobody can hear me and I think worship is massive. I think it is massive because it ushers in an awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit, who, of course, is always there, but we're not always aware of. So I think I would say that the disciplines are incredibly important and that they are attractive and that they help to create steady habits in our lives. Incredible. Thank you so much. And uh, so now... Look, talking about sharing the gospel, what, what is what does it mean to share the gospel? What's it mean to you? What's it mean? What can we learn about sharing the gospel? Well, I suppose one of the first people that I really understood this from was a man called John Wimber, who years and years ago, John used uh, God used him to set up the vineyard. Uh, but he used to talk about words and works. Jesus was a word worker. It's both and. It's not either or. It's not just talking about the gospel or doing good works. They've got to go hand in hand. And I suppose the world ought to be asking questions that our behavior has raised in their minds. I think back. Can I tell a story? Mm, I think back ages ago now, but we, John and I were involved in a church and one of the youth, we came across a youth and she was up before the courts for um, shoplifting. And so we got involved with her and we helped the family and so forth. And not long after, her mother came to me, came up the garden path, and she said, I want what you've got. Just because she had seen us working out the life of Jesus and the sweetness of Jesus in a desperate family situation. And uh, she just said, I want what you've got. She was a nightclub singer. 
So we didn't have that much in common, but my goodness, by the end, we had Jesus in common. It was very sweet. So my point is that one's life, one's works, one's serving Jesus in all sorts of practical ways will raise questions that then one could sometimes have an occasion to answer. You know, what is it that makes you like you are? What makes you tick? Why are you always so happy? Things like that. And then there are, of course, answers to that. Well, actually, somebody asked me the other day, how do you stay married for so long? An open goal. Well, as a matter of fact, it's all about Jesus. And off we went. So that's, that's amazing. You often hear people say something along the lines of preach the gospel, use words if necessary. I think that taps into something of what you're saying there about um, a life lived in a way that raises questions. But then what is the specific role of actually sharing with our words, like proclaiming the yeah. gospel to yeah. those around us, in addition to and alongside a life lived that's mm. compatible with and comp- you know shows the gospel to the world around us? What's the specific role of words, of sharing, of, of, of speaking of Jesus and the gospel? Yeah. Well, you, you'll think me terribly naughty and controversial, and you can cut this out if you want to, but basically I think preaching the gospel but don't use words is a cop-out. It's not a phrase I very much like. I think it's marginally heretical, but who am I to challenge you? Um, basically, the words and the works go together. Think of a spear, and the spear has a shaft, which are the works of Jesus, and the tip is the point, which is the words of Jesus with which we go in at a, a slightly later point. It's a bit like saying, you know, if you're married or you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever, it's all very well to kiss or to cuddle or whatever. But if nobody ever said anything, I love you or you look amazing, or if they never said anything, you'd never be very sure. It's got to be both and. That's what I think. And therefore, one wants to practice what Jesus would do. You try to think, how would Jesus be in this situation? How can I be helpful? How can I be kind? And then you also want to have at your disposal a way of talking about coming to faith. How do I know more? How can I learn more? You want to be able to talk about it, articulate it well, as well as actually just doing things. And that's, I think, terribly important. And I think we need to work on um, developing lines almost. If someone were to say to you, what is it that makes you tick? How would you start to answer that? Well, funny you should ask that, I would say. You probably think me slightly mad, but I would say the answer to a lot of those questions is the person of Jesus, and then start to talk about Jesus. So you want to practice lines or entry points or little phrases that are easy for people to pick up on. So I would practice. We had... um, I'm definitely name dropping here, but the Archbishop of Canterbury came to visit us uh, when we were at a big service in the vineyard and we asked him to pray over the vineyard movement. It was all our leaders just before he took up his place at Lambeth. And we said to him, Justin, is there anything you would say to us as a movement? And he might just as well say it to any of you, any of us. And he said, yes, there are two things I would say. And the first is every single one of you ought to be able to lead a person to Jesus. I thought, wow, that's amazing. And then he talked about the Holy Spirit, which, of course, warmed my heart. But the thing about talking about leading someone to Jesus, just work it out, learn it. How could you explain the gospel in two minutes? How could you explain it with non-religious words, what Jesus means to you, um, why you need him so much, why do you think he had to die, how is it that you can have this for yourself? It's so straightforward. And it's worth practicing so that if that two-minute occasion comes up, you can use it. Amazing. You, just to pick up on what you're talking there about the Archbishop and um, 
uh, there's quite a common understanding or at least anecdotally it seems to be the case that people can leave this to the evangelists in the church like i'm not an obvious yeah. evangelist yeah. um and so that's for them and not for me almost um what would you say to those of us who wouldn't consider ourselves out and out evangelists um how can we what what, what would you say to us do you know what i'd say the first thing i'd say is you're not so don't try we're not all evangelists. We're not all prophets. But we are all witnesses and we can all be prophetically gifted. So I am not a Billy Graham. I'm not a Jonathan Edwards. I'm not a Mike Pilavachi or a J. John. I'm not even the Archangel Gabriel. But I can witness and talk about Jesus. And therefore, I think we get hung up on the evangelist word. I mean, there's a definite ministry for evangelists, which is why we have our Billy Grahams and our J. Johns and our Pilavachis. But that's not all of us. And therefore, if it's not me, I'm not going to sweat and I'm not going to lose any sleep over it because there's no way that I'm not always going to try and be a witness to Jesus just by loving him, following him, obeying him and talking about him. Incredible. Uh, I think it'd be safe to say that we live in a culture where there are high levels of scepticism towards religion and any claim to ultimate truth. Um, has that changed how you share your faith? Do you see that as you're sharing your faith in this country and other major cities like New York or other places? Do you see, do you see that and how have you responded to that? I think you're right. I think there are high levels of scepticism. I think that's true generationally. Um, but, you know, the truth is that each generation, be it yours or mine, has to work out what is going to work best in their generation. So there was a famous revivalist, of course, Jonathan Edwards, working in, through the Great Awakening in America at the end of the 18th century, I think it was. And he used to say it's the task of every generation to discover in what direction the sovereign redeemer is moving and move in that direction. And I love it. It's one of my favorite phrases in the world, the sovereign redeemer. He is on the move, whether you like it or not. And he is in the business of redeeming, whether you realize it or not. And so I love that. And I want to be able to encourage people to sniff out how it is in their day and in their time. Because the truth is that um, if we were to talk principles, let's talk first principles. Mm. The message is absolute and it doesn't change. The gospel of the kingdom, the life and death of Jesus, the resurrection, his coming again, heaven and hell. These are absolutes. They are realities. They are our creedal position. And those don't change. Mm. However, the market changes. Of course the market changes. We're not tin miners in Cornwall with Billy Bray preaching the gospel at us. You know, we're not even out in the fields listening to Whitfield and Wesley. We are a generation which lives on social media, which is very fast, uh, we live in a city. It's all very different. So the message is the same. The market is different. And therefore, the medium or the method must change. Mm -hmm. And we must change with it. So, yes, of course, it changes how I do things. Um, you know, I I do stuff via Twitter. I wouldn't have dreamt of that 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, I'm a dinosaur. I'm a Luddite. But then I also recognize in my days, I've, if, I don't, if I don't keep up with this thing, then I lose it. So I, am as, I think I'm as fierce about the gospel and the message as I've ever been. I'm as absolute and as uncompromising as ever. But I hope I get a little easier around the edges in the way that I would talk about it or deliver it or preach or whatever. 
be really interesting to hear a little bit about the role of story then perhaps mm. in sharing within this particular cultural moment a part of pattern uh is about understanding our own personal story in order that we might be able to tell it yeah. to those around us yes. with confidence yes. um in given what we've just been talking about skepticism and all of that sort of thing uh what, what do you see as a role of story of your story of telling stories mm. in order to tell the story of god and of jesus mm. at work what, what would you say about story I would say the story has never been more important. People are still riveted by stories. They want, for all the different mediums and for all the different ways we do things and for all the virtual this, that and the other, or artificial intelligence, whatever you talk about, people still want story. They want humanity and they want story. They want interconnection. They want community. And there is no shortcut to that. So story, I think, is huge. I've always been riveted by stories. I collect stories. I have a whole category of glory stories because I just think that's what brings these things to life. Jesus told stories. The church has always told stories. And stories are very often the most powerful thing. I can't remember what it was recently. I was doing something and somebody said, you know, I'll forget everything you ever said, but I'll never forget the story. And we are part of a big story, but we have our own stories. And I also think part of what we're talking about you know, the disciplines and walking by faith and asking to be filled constantly with the Holy Spirit. We're looking for our own stories. And I, some of you may know a man called Jay Pathak, who's a great friend of ours. And Jay is ruthless. He said, don't use any story that is more than three weeks old, which is quite hard to do. <laughs> we live on past stories, but his point is our stories are in the immediate. This is ongoing and we need fresh stories and new experiences of Jesus and watching him at work all the time. So yes, story has never, I mean, it's always been important. It's never been more important. Amazing. Amazing. Um, so someone's listening to this and loves Jesus, uh, giving their life to Jesus, but, but, but is inexperienced in sharing the gospel, um, beyond personally knowing it themselves. What would you say to someone plucking up the courage for the first time to go and share their faith after listening to this? What should their, what should their first step be? Well, I suppose the first thing I would say is take a chill out. I mean, take a chill pill. It's really, really not to be intense. Don't gear yourself up. Don't think this is a big moment. You know, I'm either going to blow it or whatever. Don't make a big deal of it. It's not like going to the dentist for a root canal. It's really just an extension of who you are and what you are currently experiencing. So I would... If I wanted to go and share my faith with somebody very intentionally, I would pray for insights. I would pray for that person. I would pray for insights to know what's going on in their life. Is there any little um, trigger that would help them? Is there anything that I might know, Lord, that you can tell me and nobody else might know? That's amazing. When somebody comes to you and asks you a question or says something about your life that they couldn't know otherwise, that's a very powerful tool. So that's something I would ask for. And then I would also, um, I think like we said just now, I would work on one or two opening sentences. So when I've sometimes shared my faith randomly, which I very occasionally have, I will have worked out a sentence like, very often it's because I want to pray for somebody, hmm. whether it's in Tesco's, whether it's on the train, all of which I do, I'll say, you'll probably think I'm bonkers, but I'm a Christian. I believe there's a God in heaven. I know that he loves you and I think he might want to speak to you. Can I tell you more? <laughs> Something like that. Something that is really unthreatening and quite, I hope, natural. And at the end begs a question. There's a hook in that. Do you want to know more? And that person has every right to say, no, thank you. 
Somebody once said to me, somebody quite close to me once said to me, don't ever, ever pray for me again. <laughs> well, you know, people have the right to say no and they have the right to choose. But the part that I play is to be obedient to Jesus and to do what he's prompted me to do and to ask the question or to start to. Amazing. It's like going out on the ice. It feels so unsafe. There's a lot of risk in it. But then there's a lot at stake. And, you know, what? what is there not to win? And so sometimes you will say, um, why do people not do this? So what is it that holds people back? I think people get held back by fear. I think they're afraid of looking foolish. I think they're afraid of losing a friend. I think they're afraid of getting it wrong. And none of that matters. You can be wrong. So, so what? Um, and looking foolish and feeling embarrassed, well, it's only your stuff. It's not anybody else's. So it's, it's clambering over your own insecurities and your own um, lack of sureness in yourself and thinking, Jesus, I'm going to trust you. If you want to use me, well, so be it. It's all about you, actually. I'll do my bit. But at the end of the day, I remember Carol Wimber once saying to me when we first came home to plant our vineyard church now 30 years ago, and she said to me, Eleanor, you will knock on 10 doors in your street and nine doors will be shut in your face. But behind the 10th door, there will be somebody who is crying out for the words of life. Mm. So it's worth the, if you like, feeling rather stupid after the ninth door in order to hang in for the 10th. We're talking life, life and death here. So it's, you know, I, I'm very passionate about it, but I don't ever want to be intense. Let's not be intense. Let's not be religious. I can't stand religion. I'm so not religious, but I am crazy about Jesus and I'm passionate about the kingdom and I love the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. So I am very, very serious about it. But don't ever, ever let us be intense. Let's stay attractive. Amazing. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's infectious. Uh, <laughs> thank you. So I'm really interested, Ellie, is there anything in the scriptures that you see that have sort of made it, given you a framework or an understanding of, of what it might mean to, to share your faith with those around you? Mm. Well, I suppose one of the verses that is the most straightforward and that has really, really been helpful is, you know, when Andrew took his brother to find to see Jesus, he, Andrew, said to Peter, come and see. Come and see. That's all he said. What is that? Three words, one syllable. Come and see. And that's, I think, the thing that I find the easiest. Come and see. Come and have a look. Come to church with me on Sunday. We've got a great vicar. He'll tell, you know, come and, come and listen. Come and talk. Come and try. Come to Alpha. Just come and see. Give it a week or two. Come and see. And in all of that, Jesus is very attractive and he hooks people. So I think come and see, I think it's a wonderful way of keeping the bar very, very low. And for me, that's very encouraging. Amazing. And Ellie, do you have any stories that would encourage those listening? Um, either of times you've done this and it all went wrong, and <laughs> but you moved on, or at times where things, where God moved in power, anything you'd want to share with us? I, yeah, I, I love glory stories. I, I collect glory stories. One tends to collect glory stories and, and forget the other ones. But I was reminded just now of someone I prayed for at the end of it. She said, don't ever, ever do that to me again. So it doesn't always. But, you know, I think 90, maybe 5, 6% of the time, 
if you offer to pray for someone and it doesn't seem to make an immediate difference, they will always feel the better for your having taken the time, looked them in the eye, cared for them, laid a hand on their shoulder. People very rarely refuse to be prayed for. Um, if you're of an age when you're you have small children, always go to your friends and say, can I pray for your child? No mother ever will say no. It's a wonderful way in. So to pray for somebody is a mark of real compassion and concern as well as an opening for power. So I, I pray for people whether or not I see anything happen. I also pray for people because it's a, it's a question of blind obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And one of his commandments was pray for the sick, you know, bind up the brokenhearted, do all those things. So I pray for the sick just because I'm trying to be obedient. And I have had some great stories. So I had a, a next-door neighbor, um, a great, a, again, next-door neighbors. Go for your neighbors. You know, we don't have to go on a ministry trip. We don't have to pay an airfare to go overseas. We can just talk across the garden fence. And I spent a lot of time with this neighbor. And um, she came to me one day and she had a very nasty, large, orange-sized, I'd like to think grapefruit, lump in her stomach, in her intestines. And she was terrified. Young mother, four children. I was out outraged. I thought, this is just such an attack of the enemy on this girl's body and soul and family. So I took her off and we prayed. And uh, I prayed that God would shrivel this lump. And uh, they booked surgery. I mean, it was all very serious. And she went away with her husband for a week with the children for half term, came back. And she was to have another x-ray and then surgery. And the mother was to be brought in for the children. Children had to be told. So on Monday, she came back. I prayed for her a week before. And she said, Eleanor, I think my lump has shriveled. Have you heard this story before? Mm -hmm. I think it's shriveled. It's, big. it's not so big. So I said, and then, of course, my faith rose. Having been pretty low the week before, my faith began to rise a little. And I said, well, let's pray again. So this was Monday morning. So we prayed again. And with me, there was a new, you know, oh, I was really up for this. And laid hands on her and prayed that this thing would disappear. And then she went to the surgeon that afternoon for another x-ray before the surgery. Children were to be told, this was Monday, children to be told Wednesday, mother brought in Thursday, surgery Friday. Monday afternoon, she sent one of the children round with a photocopy of the medical notes. And across it scrawled in huge letters, it's gone. There was no lump. The children never had to be told. Mother was stood down, which is good for everybody. And Friday, the surgery was cancelled. And we've never heard anything since. Amazing. Now, that's the sort of stuff. That's mm. fabulous. Mm. But in amongst that, on the way to something like that, you'll pay for four or five people and you won't see anything mm. happen. Mm. It's like knocking on the doors. That doesn't always happen. But I will, more people get healed because I pray mm. than will get healed if I didn't. Mm. That's the issue. More people will encounter Jesus if I talk about him than if I keep quiet. But whether they get healed, whether they come to faith, at the end of the day, it's not for me. It is for him. And he is the sovereign redeemer. Amazing. Thank you, Ellie, so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Pattern Podcast. If you'd like to explore more spiritual patterns of living, head over to pattern.org.uk.